Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. It was very shocking to me at first that they used to work for that long. What makes change happen? I can also have these little pieces of happiness as well. And how do we maintain hope? When I hear her sing these songs, I can better understand how someone could summon the bravery and the hope to take to the streets. Imagine yourself in St. Louis nearly 150 years ago in 1877. The streets are bustling. It's one of the most populated cities in the country, and there are more people living in the city than in the present day. In the dozen years since the Civil War's end, industry is booming thanks to railways, river transport, and manufacturing. That means some St. Louisans are living large in a flourishing, yet heavily polluted, city. But prosperity lies out of reach for the men, women, and yes, children, who work unstable, often dangerous jobs for wages that cannot lift them out of poverty. So in July of 1877, over 10,000 workers in St. Louis go on strike for better conditions. It's a momentous event in local and national labor history. And now it's the focus of a new play called 1877. Here to talk about that work and this week's premiere at the Missouri History Museum, we have its writer, Colin McLaughlin. Colin, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So let's get some context here. What exactly were those over 10,000 workers striking to change? That's a great question. Well, you, you set the scene so wonderfully of what, it, what the world looked like or what St. Louis looked like in 1877. And at that time, there was a railroad strike that spread across the entire country, one of the first strikes in the country that spread across multiple states. But St. Louis has the distinction that the strike spread to other trades because the wealth disparity was so so stark, the poverty was so systemic here, that workers across all trades transcended their divides and organized around common interests. As you said, they stood up against child labor, they, and they fought for an eight-hour workday. Mm-hmm. And they organized across a dozen languages. You know, St. Louis uh, was and is a city of immigrants and refugees. And they organized across languages, across cultural barriers. And it became this really incredible example of solidarity and people power. Mm-hmm. So it's called it a general strike because of who participated. And you said it was across trades. What did that mean? Um, And this encompassed both East St. Louis in Illinois as well as St. Louis, Missouri, right? That's right, absolutely. From East St. Louis all through the city into the county and Carondelet and the surrounding areas. Um, A general strike, this was the first of its kind and the biggest that ever happened in the United States of America. And a general strike happens when many, many trades stand together. So in St. Louis in 1877, it started on the railroads and then some organizers from a group called the Working Man's Party, although don't let the name fool you, that women and children had a huge role in the strike, but they began to organize and workers came together. They shut down over 60 factories. They shut down the ports, the trolley system. They 
declared a general strike against all industry, all work ceased. For three days, the workers ran the city nonviolently and collectively. Mm-hmm. Now, St. Louis is your adopted home, mm-hmm. Colin. So the general strike of 1877 isn't something that you would have heard. Uh, you would have heard about going to school here. When did you first learn about the strike and then come to write an entire play about it? Yeah, I, I think you'll like the answer of how I first heard about it because actually I was listening to St. Louis on the air when I first heard about it, right? We'll, we'll plug the show while we're on it. But um, <laughs> there was a 2019 segment where Mr. Percy Green II was being interviewed, a mentor of mine, an incredible St. Louis activist, um, just an unparalleled civil rights worker. And he was talking about his tireless protests through the 60s and the 70s of the Veiled Prophet organization. And he connected the founding of the Veiled Prophets to the general strike that happened in 1877. I was already in touch with Mr. Green. We were working on a play of mine that uh, actually went up last January called Action about his group. Um, And he kind of sent me down the rabbit hole. I wrote the play the summer of 2020 um, during lockdown, and he was the first one to read it and give some thoughts. But I also immediately shared it with another mentor of mine, Joan Suarez, who was the original founder of Bread and Roses, Missouri. And her, along with uh, our friend Shannon Duffy, a union organizer and active member of the labor movement, gave me more context and history about the strike. And uh, yeah, that's how I first heard about it. It was Mm -hmm. on this show. That's a great connection and not (laughs) one that I was expecting. So the play itself and your approach to it, you heard about it through an interview with Percy Green. And I think that's sort of apropos to the character's first way that you went into this. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to go that way? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I I think um, the the St. Louis theater community is incredible. It's incredibly strong. And to tell a story like this, the play has six performers. They're playing, I think, around 30 different characters. They're speaking, oh man, maybe 10 different languages throughout the show to help paint the picture, to help show us what the bustling streets and cities and union halls looked like at that time. And so for every part in the show, it was either written for a specific actor or tailored to that actor after we cast the show. For instance, a friend of mine, Christina Rios, in the play, we we knew that she speaks French and that she speaks Spanish. And so we added that, that she would bring those voices to the table in the chorus of voices or another friend of mine who speaks some Italian and who was willing to learn some German. And so we, we tailored it to these performers specifically and multiple cast members such as Courtney Morris, who plays the main character, a 12-year-old, she was a student of mine, and I told the director and the producer, this is the only person I know that could play this part. She mm-hmm. was the only person we called in because she was so perfect for it. And yeah. thankfully, her and her family decided that she could take on that amount of work and help us tell the story. Right. And sixth grader again. She's, yeah. she's 12. Now, there is something else that is part of this play, and that is music. Um, so there are, are songs in 1877, like this one, which is sung by the cast members at a recent rehearsal. We shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved. Just like the tree that's planted by the water. We shall not be moved. We shall stand and fight together. We, we shall, shall not be moved. We shall stand and fight together. We shall not be moved. 
That was We Shall Not Be Moved, sung by the cast of the original play, 1877. Uh, produced by the nonprofit Bread and Roses Missouri and written and directed by Colin McLaughlin, 1877 takes up an historic event in local and national labor history, and that is the St. Louis General Strike of 1877. This is not a musical, but it, this is a, an integral part of this production. Colin, why did you decide to make music part of it? Ah, mm. oh, man. Um, music is is like oxygen. It's just a biological necessity, I feel. And I, I don't write from certainty. I write from questions. And I feel like two of the central questions in this play are what makes change happen and how do we maintain hope? And I feel like music is so connected to both of those questions. Um, that was a... Tyler White, by the way, leading the vocals, just an incredible voice and just an incredible group of singers all around. But mm -hmm. I also wanted to have music be a central part of the play because singing in the streets, music has been a part of every major social movement on earth. And in the labor movement in our country, in America, um, singing spiritual songs, sometimes changing the lyrics to kind of connect more with organized labor is a hundred year old tradition. and. You know, it's um, it's it also, when I was researching the play, it was exceptionally rare for the newspapers or any source to quote the striking workers. Mm -hmm. There was only two or three instances I could find something that someone actually said in the streets, but all of them wrote that they were singing, singing and marching, singing and chanting. And so we pulled some of the songs that they might have sung at the time, songs that have always been connected to the labor movement and to civil rights. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about the roots of the, the song, We Shall Not Be Moved. It's a spiritual song initially that was sung by enslaved people and then later adopted as protest music. Um, was there a, a reason, apart from its being recognized as that, for incorporating it into this production? Mm, thank you. That's such a great question. I think that that kind of spiritual song at its core, at least my interpretation, one of the messages is a person asserting their dignity and saying, I have a voice, I have a mind, I'm here. And I think that when workers go on strike, they are demanding specific changes, better pay, safe working conditions, but they're always asserting their dignity. Mm -hmm. And in that assertion, uh you know, the music obviously is going to give them a sense of time and place. But one of the other songs in the play, I believe, is a, a Woody Guthrie song. Mm -hmm. And that came well after mm -hmm. the 1877 general strike. Mm -hmm. How does that song fit into what you were trying to achieve with this? Mm. Thank you. Yeah. There's a song called Pastures of Plenty that is based on an old folk ballad that I think is originally from the United Kingdom. Um, and Woody Guthrie changed the lyrics in the 30s and 40s to speak about migrant workers. And after the play was mostly written, I heard his version of this song that spoke directly to the struggle in the play that was being told. Um, and I also thought of it because the workers are fighting for an end to child labor and an eight-hour workday. And these are things that 
we're still fighting for, mm -hmm. especially for migrant workers in our country right now. So we might think of this as ancient history, or we might see this play and think, wow, that's so wild that back then children were working all day. But that's actually still happening mm -hmm. right now. And so that's part of why I thought of that song. And in the song, I heard that the lyrics were honoring um, the suffering, but also I heard that assertion of dignity. Mm -hmm. Our pastures of plenty must always be free. Um, and I also took some lyrics from um, a writer named Joe Hill, who was a member of the labor movement and is still kind of a labor icon. So it's a that's somebody that I knew that people from the labor movement would be excited to hear their presence in the play. Yeah, so there's some melding together then. Mm -hmm. So earlier you had talked about the character's first approach and having specific people in mind. So it sort of struck me as a, a chicken and egg sort of mm. um, dynamic. So with the casting, you were looking for people who could sing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, did you have recommendations? Were there they people that you knew already? Yeah, they're, they were all people that I had worked with before. And... Tyler White, who we heard singing that lead vocal, was the only person we had come in and read for that part. And when I hear her sing these songs, I it can better understand how someone could summon the bravery and the hope to take to the streets and fight for a more just world and mm -hmm. put it all on the line and um, literally their lives. I mean, the railroad strike that was happening at the time, thankfully, did not um, become violent in St. Louis, and, and no workers that we know of lost their lives. But across the country, at least 100, maybe 200, um, in this railroad strike were killed. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but that being said, yes, all the all the characters kind of, that's the joy of working on, on a new play, a new work, is that we can kind of, I, I wrote specifically inspired by these performers, but then I could meld it even more in the rehearsal process when I learned even more about their bag of tricks. And this the most talented and patient cast I've ever worked with when we say, hey, can we add another line in German? Or do you want to sing this other song? Or how would you feel about also playing a third character in this one scene? And they all said, sure, absolutely. And just joyfully helped me um, use six people to tell a story of 10,000 people taking to the streets. We need to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll talk with one of those performers who will be bringing the St. Louis General Strike of 1877 to life this week at the Missouri History Museum. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. Uh, a quick correction. I previously identified Colin as the director. The director of 1877 is Jess Shoemaker. Now, Josh Mayfield is a St. Louis actor who plays 1877's main character, Jonah. So who is Jonah, Josh? Uh, and what makes him the central figure of this play? Um, so whenever I think about Jonah, I think about a, a person who has dealt with overwhelming amounts of loss and um, had to overcome 
being put in a situation where they have had to grow up very quickly and take on a lot of responsibility at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a person who has lost so many hopes and possible dreams because of the situation they've been put in. And it seems as though every time they try to regain hope, it is kind of snatched away from them in an unfortunate circumstance mm-hmm. that they are going through. But um, he's also a man that has so much dignity that you would never know that those hopes were snatched away from him because he doesn't really want to share those with anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. But he's, he's, a, he's a very complex character. Colin did a fantastic job in, in, in making sure that those layers of character were very seen. Mm-hmm. So. And Colin, can you give us just a sort of a brief synopsis of what the storyline is in the play? Because it's not merely a, a regurgitation of historical facts or, or moments. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So we have the story of the strike unfolding over four or five days in St. Louis City. And then we also have the story of a family, a family of two. We have Jonah Parker and his younger sister, Eleanor, and um, and their friend, Morris Sullivan, who, Sullivan trying to kind of convince them to, to recapture some of that hope, to take part in the strike, and Jonah and Eleanor weighing their options, you know, the risk at hand of, you know, putting it on the line and taking to the streets. So we have the story of the strike, and then we have uh, a family story, a human story, because... Something that I wanted to do was uh, humanize these 10,000 workers that took to the streets. So we have Jonah Parker, who is not just a striking worker, but has a life that's full of tragedy and, and comedy and hopes and dreams and backstory. Um, yeah. Now, Josh, coming into this play, earlier we had talked about Colin not being a St. Louis native, but you are our STL through and through, born and raised here. And yet the St. Louis General Strike of 1877 was unknown to you before you came to this play. Is there some detail about it as an historical event that really struck you and perhaps informed the way that you play Jonah? That's a wonderful question. Um, So... It being so, the strike being unknown to me, I, and this is this is forgive me. I uh, I don't know a lot about St. Louis history, although I am from here, and that's probably bad on my part, but that's okay for this time. Um, but the strike being unknown to me and learning about it, it was just a very surreal thing to 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 understand and to see that in this place that I've lived for so long, that there were so many different voices and so many different ethnicities and different backgrounds that came together to work for a common ground in this specific scenario, because um, from what I understand and from my own anecdotes in growing up, it's a little difficult to get people from different backgrounds to work together, especially in, here is a prime example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the way that uh, it affected me playing Jonah, it's just that um, what I was saying earlier about Jonah having a lot of dignity, a lot of, um, I would say he's a little standoffish because of the things that have been taken away from him. Mm-hmm. So he, I would say I play him in a way that, or I would hope that I'm exhibiting that way I play him in a way that he is open to being a part of this in a way that um, 
he's open to sharing these things with other folks and sharing these things with other people of uh, different ethnicities and backgrounds. But he's also like, I'm going to protect myself and protect my own family first. Mm-hmm. Was there anything that was challenging about this role? I think that based off of what I just said, it was tough kind of realigning those moments where it's more grounded in concern and experiencing those little happy moments mm-hmm. rather than just being mad at the world the entire time. It's it's finding that healthy balance between I'm upset that this is my life and this is what I have to deal with and go through, but I can also have these little pieces of happiness as well mm-hmm. and I shouldn't have to resort to only being subjected to sadness and yeah. despair all the time. Well, and one of the reasons, Colin, that you thought of Josh for this role is the ability to sing. So <laughs> what was that like? And did that sort of naturally give you space for for joy in this role? Yes, um, absolutely it did. I Because I, I sing just unbearably, insufferably all the time. And, and, then, and you know, it's my character trait that I bear every day. Um, so being able to come in to this show and have the opportunity to be able to sing, just, it definitely, I think it combats all of the, um, the dark moments in the character with the expression of being able to sing in such a joyful way. Mm-hmm. Now, Josh, you are not the only cast member to be introduced mm-hmm. to history, you know, also doing this music, um, and introduced to 1877 in a very particular way. And the play's youngest performer, 12-year-old Courtney Morris, told us that playing Eleanor, jo- uh, who's the, the main character, Jonah's little sister, really opened her eyes to the realities of being a child in 1877. I learned a lot from like all the characters and how the characters could also be real people that were in the strike. So experience those same things. And can you tell me what about the the children's experience came to you as being frightening or, or scary? Well, kids nowadays don't usually like work for that long. They usually work like twelve hour days up to eight hours. So it was very shocking to me at first that they used to work for that long. And what kinds of work were the children doing? Usually okay, so the Eleanor, she's usually working in the flour mill. But by the end of the play, she ended up getting a new job. But for right now, most kids used to work in the flour mill or working with, like, small products like sugar and, like, tobacco and stuff. So in addition to learning about the kinds of work that children her age were doing, Courtney also said that she got guidance and saw connections between the 1877 general strike and more present-day movements from production team members who gave her a firmer grasp of the play itself. Most of my directors and producers used that as an example to get me to understand it better. And by the end of it, I kind of learned a lot about the play. Now, we can hear in her voice that she is young. Uh, Courtney is in sixth grade, and she told us that all her friends are coming to see the play this week. It it is her debut, after Mm -hmm. all. Colin, how did anticipated audience factor into the way you adjusted or revised the script um, and 
uh, you know, in Jess's uh, direction of what people will experience at performances this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've something I've learned with working with Bread and Roses for five or six years is that when you lift up a story of uh, working people, then that can inform who your audience is. And, and it's rare to have a play where the main characters are working people. Um, I can't wait to meet all of Courtney's friends, and she is just the soul of this play, and it's so wonderful with Josh here, Josh Mayfield, who just sings with his whole self in this play. So I'm so grateful to have both of them. But the anticipated audience for me is a lot of members of the labor movement because Bread and Roses has, is so connected to that community and is in joyful collaboration with them. And I have been welcomed by that community for the last five or six years. And a playwright friend of mine, Courtney Bailey, talks about playwriting as a gift, as an offering. And so I think of this play in part as a celebration of working people, a celebration of this city, but also a gift to the St. Louis labor movement right now that has taught me so much. Mm-hmm. And is that what makes this the right time for this production? I think so. I, I suppose they let people draw their own connections with the present day, but it is very surreal to hear people talking about their daily strife 150 years ago, and you feel a pang in your heart, like, wow, that could have been said today, mm-hmm. maybe in a little less old-timey fashion, but yeah. but the sentiments are so similar. It's, mm-hmm. it's very surreal. Yeah. Josh, what has it been like to embody history with this play? Um, well, fortunately, I've, I've had the opportunity to play um, a handful of historical figures in my career as an actor, um, one of them being a previous play that Colin wrote, Action, where I had the opportunity to play uh, Judge Johnson. So, and, and this was a little further in, in time. It was in the 60s rather than in the 1800s. But um, being able to, to do these things and to play these men who have been in such a trying time in history has is it's a it's a lot sometimes um uh for this for these rehearsals specifically um there are some scenes where the scenes get very heavy and they get very um combative and sometimes after those scenes and you just do them over and over again and you're building up yourself and cuz you're putting your body in a state of um, just activation and your body doesn't really know the difference between these things sometimes mm-hmm. because it doesn't know that you're just playing and you're just, you know, doing this thing. Um, sometimes you just need a hug afterwards and, yeah. and you just want to just kind of decompress. And that's yeah. what and that's what I've done so far. Just yeah. kind of get a hug and just kind of settle and mm-hmm. mellow out. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> and from your perspective as a performer, Josh, how is 1877 more than, say, you know, a reenactment or you know, different from a, a dramatization. Um, being that the story of this specific play doesn't just tell the events of 1877 and what happened with the strike, and it includes this very human and hopeful story with what happens with Jonah and Eleanor and Morris, and how we go about telling their life and how we understand what happened with them specifically is a lot of the reason why. And also including lots of music as well, because we have a lovely quote from the show where um, our character mother says, you can only win a fight if you sing. And that's understanding that and and having those moments where 
we really connect with the humanity in, 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 the, in the show is what helps it become more than just the dramatization. Mm-hmm. So as we wrap here, this week is the only week people can see this play on Thursday night which is tomorrow. There's a free preview performance as part of the Thursday nights at the museum um, events, and it's labor-themed this week. And then there are ticketed performances on Saturday night, um, two performances on Saturday afternoon and night, and then a final performance on Sunday that includes a panel. What is uh, What was the motivation for doing a, a panel and what do you think it will add to people's experience of of the play and of this sort of historical uh, document in itself? Mm-hmm. I'm really excited for the panel because I think, as I said, the play dwells in questions that are very relevant to right now in 2023. So um, I'm really excited to hear from audience members how they feel about these questions. I want them to join the conversation I want to compare notes with them about hope and social change and how it happens. And uh, yeah, I hope everyone can come on down. Um, St. Louis is emblematic of uh, poverty and racism on the world stage for good reason, but this also, this city has been on the forefront of the civil rights movement for hundreds of years and something worth celebrating. Mm Colin McLaughlin is the writer of the original play 1877, which hinges on the St. Louis General Strike of 1877, and Joshua Mayfield is the actor playing and singing the main role of Jonah in 1877. Josh and Colin, thank you so much for talking with us today, and best of luck with the performances. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. This episode was produced by Elaine Shaw and Alex Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.